We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel, a podcast about all things rock art. Send us your suggestions. Hello, everybody. This is uh, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. This is the uh, Rock Art Podcast in Episode 4, and we're honored to have Bill Hyder on our, our team today talking about Chumash rock art and the nature of his research efforts and how to understand and interpret and identify some rather spectacular rock art from a complex group of hunter-gatherers that lived along the coast of California. Welcome, everyone. This is uh, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. This is the Rock Art Podcast on your Archaeology Podcast Network. And today we have the honor of uh, connecting and interviewing with uh, Bill Hyder, who's a tremendous pioneer in the world of rock art studies, scholarly study of rock art, and uh, a colleague of mine. He is a former president of the American Rock Art Research Association and also a board member of the California Rock Art Foundation that uh, sponsors our rock art studies. Bill Hyder, are you there? Yes, I am. Well, Bill, it's a, it's a great honor and, a, and a, just a marvelous opportunity to interact with you today. And uh, hopefully we'll have time over this hour to sort of journey through your career and also talk about some of your most recent research and your thoughts and reflections on the study of rock art and archaeology. How's that? That sounds good to me. You, you are too kind in your description of me. <laughs> are you being humble? <laughs> it's, it's, it, 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 yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to be humble, right? <laughs> so, so anyways, let's kick it off with a very basic questions. How the heck did you ever get involved in the study of archaeology and then uh, indirectly rock art. It, it it probably started when I was a child and a fascination with dinosaurs and and thought that would be a good career to follow someday. That's that's not what happened. I um, I I was an exchange student and went overseas in the uh, '60s and became much more interested in politics. And that's sort of the direction I started to follow in the university. And then. One year, uh, I was still in college, so it was probably around 1970 or so, I bought a copy of Campbell Grant's Rock Art um, of the Chumash uh, for a friend who was an artist. I thought that would make a good Christmas present. I thumbed through it and went back and bought a copy for myself, and that sparked my interest and, and really started me on my journey in, in rock art. Uh, the friend I bought the book for, uh, he and I started going out on weekends and 
uh, trying to figure out how to locate sites that were um, in Campbell's book. And in time, it became a passion. So for those who uh, perhaps are unaware of Campbell Grant's book or even the Chumash themselves, perhaps you could give us a thumbnail snapshot of the Chumash and their rock art and why that particular topic might engage one's great interest. So, so the Chumash are situated in primarily uh, parts of San Luis Obispo County, um, almost all of Santa Barbara County, and a good part of uh, Ventura County. So they were on the coast. Uh, they were, but they lived in almost a, a perfect environment for so-called hunters and gatherers. They had the ocean. Um, to and all of its resources as well as the terrestrial resources and over time they developed some of the most spectacular rock art found not only in north america but around the world as as well and campbell grant had been a he was a, an artist he did uh, work for the disney studios and so forth he became interested in the in the rock art and in the 1950s, he and his sons and other people associated with the Santa Barbara Museum of Natural History went out and started uh, recording rock art. He would photograph it, basically in color slides, uh, come back to his studio and use those slides to do drawings, and then he painted them in with uh, watercolors. Uh, and eventually wrote the book on Chumash rock art that was published in 1964-1965 uh, by the museum. It was unlike anything that anyone had ever done before, taking a look at the culture and really going into depth and trying to reproduce the art in his own art to share with the world. So I guess for those that are perhaps uh, not from California or not familiar with the Chumash. Let's um, kind of take a, a little bit of a dive into the Chumash culture and just exactly who they are and why they might produce such spectacular rock art. As I understand it, the Chumash are what they call a complex uh, hunter-gatherer or forager culture that attained some rather impressive and complex socio-political organization. Am I correct? Uh, yes. So the, the Chumash from uh, um, DNA studies, uh, looking at early burials uh, and comparing them to DNA from the Chumash today, they, they developed uh, in place along uh, the coast. It's a Mediterranean coastline in the Santa Barbara area with the Channel Islands just off of the coast. They've been in that area for 10,000 years, perhaps a, a little longer. And in that time, they had rich uh, shellfish to draw upon. The, the marine environment uh, produced a lot of uh, what was needed to support uh, sedentary lifestyle uh, there along the coast. And by the time of the Spanish contact, they had uh, developed a socio-political organization with uh, one or more chiefs in a village, a religious structure, which is known as the ANTAP, which 
uh, directed much of what happened in life and the ceremonies around the course of the year. When the Spanish arrived, they were impressed by them, I think, more than any other native group that they ran into in California. They had an extensive trade network within their own area between the interior and the coast and between the coast and the Channel Islands. They developed a canoe um, that was called the Tamol uh, that they made out of redwood. So redwood logs would wash ashore. They would cut them into planks and they actually sewed them, the planks together and then caulked them with asphalt, a natural tar that seeps uh, from the ocean in the area. And uh, they could travel between the coast and the Channel Islands. They would fish from there. It was, it was really a, a highly developed uh, culture. What, what I understand from at least being somewhat familiar with the Chumash is uh, some people believe they had almost what's called an incipient chiefdom. They had chiefs, they had a stratified society, and then also they had almost a, a true currency with their shell bead money. Am I, is, that, is that about right? Yes. Um, uh, so they, they had one or more chiefs, but there were also primary chiefs that had influence over surrounding villages. And, and there, there were separations between those districts that often warred with uh, one another. But on the Channel Islands, they developed a, a shell bead currency. That's where they, they made the shells would grind them very fine uh, status. Uh, they use those for trading with the mainland. And those shells, shell beads, uh, were an important form of currency that were traded all the way into uh, the Southwest, into Arizona, New Mexico, and so forth. So it was a valued currency. They managed the currency through uh, mourning ceremonies. So. Every few years, they would have a ceremony where they would honor the dead, and a lot of shell beads would be deposited as offerings to the dead and to bring, I don't want to say good luck, but to bring good fortune to as part of the renewal ceremonies uh, uh, of the world. And you get into uh, areas around Bakersfield and so forth in cemeteries that uh, years ago, when they excavated one area, they filled hundreds of gunny sacks with shell beads. So they were being mass produced, but they were also being used and expended. So it was a way of controlling the value, uh, the value of the currency, if, if you will. So, so these uh, shell beads were made out of, out of what particular kinds of shells per se? Olivella shells were the primary ones. Elsewhere in California, many other groups use clam shells. Uh, if you move further north, they used uh, dentilium shells, which are, are long, thin shells. But in the in the Chumash area, the primary shell was. Yeah, I'm going to forget the name of the shell. I just said. yeah. I, I think I think the common name. They, they're called olivella shells because they look like olives. They're shaped like yeah. They, I think the common name is something like purple olive, and it's just a a little kind of a cowrie-like shell, not. You know, not anything you'd write home about, but they use these for what thousands and thousands of years to to create this currency, correct? Yes, uh, and you can you can often date sites uh, by these shells. Uh, Chester King, an archaeologist, 
in in the area, uh, studied a, a lot of burials from which he had other evidence of time frame. And by looking at the shell beads, he tracked how that changed over time. So early on, they would just uh, crack open the shell and use the outer kind of curved or concave part, uh, punch a hole in it and string those together. They were rather crude. By the time of Spanish contact, there were what I will call mints in villages uh, on the islands where they they were uh, drilling very fine holes in them and then uh, using sandstone to round them and shape them. And they were very small uh, and very finely made uh, and then strung together in, in long strings. Generally, the length of the string would set the value of the shells. And you would use them in a trade. And, and some of the descriptions of trades you would put down whatever you had to trade and the opposite side would put down strings of shell beads. And if the price was right, you would take the shell beads and they would take whatever goods you had to, uh, to trade. So there, there was a regular economy as well as being used in ritual purposes. So a very sophisticated form of currency, obviously, with, with sort of a standard unit of practice. So given that the Chumash were a sophisticated culture, a complex culture, what uh, elements of their culture were so engaging or uh, attractive to you? And how, mot- how, mot- how, how, excuse me, how might those have translated into the religious life of the native people? Well, it was really the, the rock art that attracted me. And... Rock art is different from almost any other artifact. You can go to a museum, you can see headdresses that they wore. They had um, beautiful uh, feathered capes uh, that they would wear in ceremonies. They used bear skins uh, in ceremonies. But all, all of those kinds of artifacts that you view, you see today in a museum. At the same time, they were creating art in the villages on whale bones, etc., making feathered poles for shrines. But when you get into the uh, mountainous area, and, and it's in the mountains because that's where you have sandstone shelters and, and outcrops, you don't have that many along the coast, there they painted uh, on the rocks. And their paintings are primarily in red, but there's red, black, and white. There's uh, yellow uh, and blue-green that appear in some areas. And they range from very simple paintings to very elaborate uh, abstract paintings that are still excite people today when they see them. And hiking out into the backcountry, as we call the foothills in, in Los Padres National Forest, where many of the sites are, hiking out into the backcountry, when you find a rock art site, you are, in, you are engaged in interacting with it in the environment in which it was created. You're not in a museum, you are now in their space, and you're looking at what they left, the early artists left, for us to see and interact with today. And are those sites still present to this various day? And are they in areas that you can get a sense of sort of the same 
setting or vision or landscape that the native people had so many years ago? Uh, there are certainly some that are have um, that urban areas have encroached on them, and there are certainly areas uh, sites that are very well known and have been vandalized uh, and damaged over time by people who really didn't understand what they were looking at. But there are also other areas I've just uh, finished. Um, uh, re-examining the results of an expedition into the Santa Barbara backcountry in uh, the 1930s in an area called Hurricane Deck. And it is uh, now a wilderness area. It's undisturbed uh, for the most part compared to other areas. There, over time, there were cattle that were run through there. They started to build a road through at one time, but that's all been abandoned and, and that's washed right. away. And that's really that's really remarkable, given this is California. You would think that much of the state had been urbanized. Let's take a break at this point and we'll uh, pick up where we left off. Thank you, Bill. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months, or go to zencastr.com and use the code ROCKART. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Hello, everybody. This is uh, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. This is the uh, Rock Art Podcast for the Archaeology Podcast network. We're in episode four. Bill, would you uh, perhaps uh, outline just briefly kind of the religious life of the Chumash so we can kind of have a glimpse of how that might relate to the rock garden? Well, we were fortunate in uh, the early part of the 1900s to have a a linguist and ethnographer by the name of John Peabody Harrington, who was concerned about the loss of cultural information over time. And so he set out to record the language of the Chumash, and he did that by sitting down with elders that had different types of knowledge and had them talk about doing things. So, um, we know about the Tomol and how the Tomols were built, how the canoes were built, because he had an elderly gentleman build one for him and talk about the process in Chumash and write down the words. And one of the people he uh, interviewed uh, happened to be the daughter of a Chumash shaman, which would be not necessarily a religious leader, but somebody involved in Chumash religious activities. And she related the 
mythology is the wrong word. She related the stories of the Chumash about their place in the world. There are three worlds, an upper world where the powerful people before they were peoples, uh, the uh, eagle uh, who uh, oversees the world, supernatural people that are positives on the world, the middle world where we live, and then the lower world where evil individuals lived. Um, they took different forms, they were misshapen, what have you. And so from her stories, we know about the creation uh, of people in the world. There was a gathering of groups of these supernatural people that live in the upper world. They had a, a, a flat rock, almost like a mirror, and they were designing what a human would look like. And so, for example, in those stories, Coyote was going to impress his paw in this model and create the hands of human. And just before he could do that, the lizard ran, ran up and put the lizard's paw in her place. That's why we have a hand with fingers like a lizard instead of a paw like coyote. Uh, so all of these stories are what explained to the average person uh, where they came from, what their place was in the world, uh, how to behave, how to be a good person uh, so that when you came to the end of your life, you went into a, a positive afterworld instead of being sent to the underworld where it, it wasn't quite like heaven and hell, but we might think of it as heaven and hell uh, in, in looking at, at our culture. And so we know that they valued everything uh, on the planet and their view of the planet was within maybe 20 square miles for most people. Uh, you didn't travel very far from your home, home village. You did have traders coming from other places. So you knew that there was more out there, but, but your world was uh, constrained to a fairly small area. And you had these rules of life that told you what was being good, what was being bad for most uh, Chumash, you went through, when you reached the age of puberty, you went through a ceremony where you took uh, a plant called Datura, a drink made from the plant called Datura. Uh, Datura is still around. It's, it's a poison if you take too much of it. But if you take just the right amount under the, the guidance of a learned person, which was generally an old lady, wise uh, from her years, uh, you uh, went into a, became unconscious, almost like a coma. And apparently you had a vision there. And when you woke up, uh, these learned uh, elders would talk to you about your vision. And, they, and that would sort of provide some guidance for your life. In order to go on to the positive other world after death, you needed to go through the Datura ceremony. And out of that, some people became uh, shamans, which who were healers. Depending upon your status, you were born into, much like today, you might end up being a chief or an assistant to a chief, a messenger. So there were a number of roles uh, within society that organized the society and 
guided how you lived. It's not much different than our own culture today, where we have political leaders that that make laws and so forth for us, and we have religious institutions that tell us how to lead a moral life, and we have uh, other people that provide police and fire and those kinds of services to keep society running. That all happened within uh, Native American cultures, and in particular the Chumash, uh, on a much smaller scale. You, you you mentioned to us earlier about the ANTAP cult. What exactly was that? It it was an organization of both political leaders and religious leaders, important people within uh, the society, and they were responsible for the annual ceremonies that occurred. So at the time of the winter solstice. Uh, there would be a ceremony to pull the sun back. The sun was slowly disappearing. If you if you think of the sun setting over the course of the year, uh, it moves from north to south where it sets on the horizon. And as the sun's disappearing as you approach the winter solstice, it's time to pull it back to bring the sun back to renew the earth. So that would be an example of a ceremony that they would have, and the ANTAP would be responsible uh, for holding those uh, kinds of ceremonies. If you got sick, you got sick because you violated a cultural norm, because somebody had evil thoughts about you and was wishing you uh, the sickness upon you or so forth. That's where a shaman or a healer would come in and perform ceremonies and help pull you back into the right mode for life. Either overcome this evil that's being beset upon you from someone else, or cleanse you for whatever, uh, I'll call it sin, for breaking the the rules of a normal uh, society. Uh, And if you broke those rules, that would make you sick. I believe that at least some of the painting sites that we see are directly related uh, to that. So, for example, above Santa Barbara, there's a place called Arrowhead Spring, and I wrote a monograph uh, about that for Kraft. And springs were, uh, many springs were a source of medicine. Uh, They were called the Tears of the Sun, and that water would help in the healing process. So uh, these these were different roles that happened within a village that that wouldn't have that many people, but everybody would have roles uh, within that society. The uh, Antap cult and these uh, rituals seem to have emphasized in part the sun. Uh, what did they think about the sun? And was this was this a supernatural being? Was this was this a deity? What was the relationship they had with the sun? Well, the the sun is what brings life to the earth. And the sun is a firebrand that's being carried by a supernatural spirit across the sky. And, and if, if that spirit got too close to the earth, you would have extremely hot weather, which would not be good for survival. If it left, it would turn cold and dark and plants wouldn't grow. So the balance between the earth and sun was important for the the well-being uh, of the people. And there was a 
one of the stories is that two of the sky people would play uh, a gambling game. And depending upon which side won, it would be a good year or it would be a bad year uh, for uh, the growth of acorns and other plants that you ate, um, et, et cetera. And uh, some years you have droughts, some years you have too much rain, and some years things are, are just right. And being able to guess the outcome of that game, the game was called Peon. It's kind of like a dice and sticks game uh, and, and guessing game. Depending upon which side won would depend upon how what your year was going to be like. So how would, how would any of this cosmology, this worldview and the understanding of the universe, this Chumash religion, relate to the authorship and the subject matter and the symbolism that we might find in the rock art? Well, that, that's, that's what makes rock art so interesting. The, the artist were painting these images uh, on the rocks for some purpose. It wasn't just, oh, I'll make my place look nice and I'll do a, a painting. There was something they were trying to communicate. And while we don't necessarily know today what it is that they were communicating, the, the strength of it, we can measure by our own reaction to the art. We look at the art today and we see something in it and it speaks to us in some way. In Chumash art, there are a lot of symbols that we refer to as sun symbols. They're round, they may have rays, uh, they may be red, they may be multicolored, what have you, but we tend to think of them as sun symbols. So we look to stories of the sun to talk about them. In some cases, they're painted in areas where they have uh, light interactions with the paintings at times of the winter solstice. Maybe the summer solstice, although I'm unaware of any that would do that, but the winter solstice would be the time when you would look for that because that's the time at the end of the year and the rebirth of a new year, much like the, uh, the birth of the Christ child was a rebirth uh, of the world in the Christian religion. So while I'm being kind of vague about what things meant, it's because we are making those assumptions from the stories that John Peabody Harrington recovered um, and wrote down so we can read them today, from the stories that the surviving Chumash have learned within their own families, and, and we are using those to try to reconstruct uh, what we see uh, on the rocks. And we have to keep in mind that while the culture seems foreign to us, we're all human beings. Our religious beliefs aren't that much different. We just have a different language, a different way of explaining things. And, and like walking into a church and seeing the paintings on the wall, that's kind of what I feel like when you go into the backcountry and you find a place with paintings and you move into that space. Some of them are very simple. Some of them are very complex. There's one in San Luis Obispo County that's called Painted Rock. It's a large uh, horseshoe-shaped rock. And for the first five or six times that I visited that site, 
I would always speak in a whisper when I was inside that because that's the feeling of awe that it gave me, much as a church gives you that feeling of awe. You generally don't walk into a church and and shout. You might sing with the choir, but that's singing is a is another ritual. That that's kind of what the rock art sites uh, mean to me. Even though we don't really know what the artist was trying to say when they painted them. So you're saying that when you see your experience a rock art site, it's almost in part a religious or supernatural or spiritual experience, and the rocks communicate to you in some deep and abiding way. Am I correct? Oh, most most definitely. You you may not be sharing the meaning with the Chumash who lived and interacted with those paintings, but you are sharing that emotional experience uh, with them. And, and meaning comes from what we know of our own culture. So you may not be sharing the same meaning as the um, prehistoric peoples, but you are certainly sharing the same emotional response and reaction to it. Well, let's hold that thought. And I think in this last section, what I'd like to do is take us through the journey of experiencing, discovering, and researching a rock art site amongst the Chumash. Thank you. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our T Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back, everyone, to the Rock Art Podcast. This is uh, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, and I'm interviewing Bill Hyder, and we're speaking about Chumash rock art. And then during this last segment, we'd like Bill to uh, take us on the sort of uh, scholarly or mental journey of what it's like to discover or recognize a rock art site and how we can go through and possibly try to attempt to understand, interpret, and say something intellectually uh, important or valuable about a rock art site. Bill? Take it away. Well, I, I think I'll use as an example the, the recent uh, work I've just done in reevaluating the, the work of the Santa Barbara Museum of Natural History in the area that I mentioned earlier, Hurricane Deck in the backcountry of the Chumash, Los Padres National Forest. That um, area was really unknown to archaeologists um, around 1930 because the the attraction of the of the coastal sites and the Chumash and the richness uh, of the sites and the artifacts that were being found directed attention away from the interior and the CCC was building a road 
to go into the backcountry, which has since been abandoned, fortunately. And in the process of building this road in the wilderness, one of the workers started going out hiking and finding caches, finding small caves filled with baskets and that kind of stuff. And that came to the attention of the supervisors who called the Natural History Museum in Santa Barbara and said, there are sites back here with some incredible paintings in them. And so they, they stopped the CCC guys from looting these caves. And looting means removing the artifacts as collectibles and selling them and trading them. And, and, and we, as um, a modern culture, lost all of that information about Chumash lifeways. Well, they, they were able to stop that, and this expedition went in and collected uh, baskets and so forth from the caves, noted the paintings, etc., and then never finished analyzing it. So I've had the opportunity to work with the museum collections and go back and start looking at these sites uh, with that fresh, the fresh eyes of when they were first seen in the 1930s. And instead of seeing, as as I had done earlier, as I was getting interested in rock art, going out, finding a site, marveling at the paintings, photographing them and leaving and trying to tell stories because I thought I saw suns in them or, or whatever, I began to look at what the archaeology said about this particular area. And we know the hurricane deck was within about a 30-minute walk of a historic village in the in the backcountry. And probably even earlier in time, there are other areas that were probably villages back there. So it was within, within a day's walk of a village, and it was a gathering area. And we know that it was a gathering area for gathering plant materials and foods and so forth. Because in the time before for now, if you needed tools to do your work when you were out harvesting something, you didn't have to pack them up and take them back home. You stored them in a little hollow in the rock, uh, maybe covered, put some stones over it, maybe put some forked sticks over it, which was a warning to leave it alone. Uh, they built little platforms to put baskets on and did things to keep the the rats and mice uh, from getting into them. And so by looking at those collections, we know, oh, this is an area where they were coming and they were gathering. There's, there's not much evidence of living at these sites over a long period of time. We're maybe talking about days, uh, maybe a week, because they were close enough that they could walk back to the village uh, if they decided to. And so we can see they were using this uh, area for gathering uh, foodstuffs, gathering the raw materials for making the tools they used in, in everyday life. And in and amongst all these sites are these paintings. So we have some idea of what we were, they were doing there. And now we can begin to look at them in a different way. And what was really exciting in the Hurricane Deck uh, in 1930s, at one of the sites, they found chewed plant materials stuffed into the crevices in this rock uh, near the paintings. And 
Um, uh, another archaeologist by the name of David Robinson, he, he's um, uh, from California, but he uh, teaches in England. Uh, he started doing some archaeological projects with rock art uh, in the Chumash area. And they discovered a site where they had these same chewed pieces of plant material, chewed cuds or quids, uh, they're called. And he thought they might be Datura, the hallucinogenic plant. And sure enough, from his analysis from the one site where he found them, that's what they were. And they were found in the hurricane deck area. Generally, these pieces of chewed plant material like this wouldn't survive. So there may have been many other sites that had them and just nobody recognized them or they were already uh, rotted away and didn't survive. But why were they chewing them and putting them in these crevices with the paintings? And we know that um, yucca leaves, they would chew on those and uh, spit out that chewed fiber that was left press them into little blocks, and then dry them, soak them in water and use them for pacifiers for babies. And that seemed to be what they were until David found out that, in fact, what we were looking at was Datura, which is an hallucinogenic and would kill you if you ate too much of it. Well, what I started looking at these sites and knowing about um, some painting sites were places where you would gather medicine, I began to think about, well, what are the properties of Datura beyond uh, giving you a, a, a hallucination? And Datura has a number of medicinal properties. Uh, it can cure headaches, cure fatigue. There's some evidence that it has some impact against cancer. But it all has to be done in very small amounts, and you need to know what you're doing because it's actually a poison which creates uh, these effects. And if you take too much, you die. Um, it's really that simple. And if you mess around with Datura, you're probably going to die. Um, <laughs> but, but they understood uh, the ways of the world uh, and and the plants in their environment because they lived with them much more intimately than we do today with our, our environment around us. And so that got me looking at these, some of these sites as could they be medicine sites? And by medicine sites, I mean a place where you could heal. And so that led me to looking at the rock art at one of these sites and as I began to look at it uh, and reading the, the cosmology of the Chumash, uh, one painting seemed to be a supernatural uh, being, and I'll call him a shaman. It looked like a bear with, with a headdress, uh, and bear shamans were a form of healing shaman. And the other paintings looked like evil supernatural uh, figures. And by evil supernatural figures, I mean... I a headless figure, a lizard that's all misshapen, a snake which has poison, rattlesnakes are, are poisonous, uh, etc. And I got to thinking, well, this would be a place where I could come and use the medicine of the bear and sit within this small cave surrounded by evil creatures and knowing that 
I could go through a healing ceremony and overcome the power of those. So that's that's what I started looking at as I began to understand more about uh, the Chumash and how they were using the area and what their beliefs were. That may be totally off base. Yeah, no, I think that's fascinating. Paint us a word picture, if you would, of what's on the rocks. What colors are they? How are they ensconced or set in stone? Where do they appear? And what kinds of rocks do they choose to paint? Most of what we see today is on sandstone. And one of the thoughts that they're always in the mountains, well, different sandstones have different hardnesses and softness. And I think what we are seeing today were the caves where the sandstone was hard enough that the paint survived. The primary paint is red. Red lasts longer than any other uh, pigment, Uh, but there's also black and white uh, and yellow. And then, like I say, there's a blue-green that is known. Paintings may have been much more colorful than we see today because white erodes away fastest. Yellow is very rare, but I discovered in the Hurricane Deck area a site where they were preparing pigments. And from that, I've, I've learned that yellow may not be well-adapted uh, pigment to surviving over a long period of time. So, And then black is the other color, and, and they rode away at different lengths. So, but red... Red is a standard color and the, and the most uh, color. One of the sites there in the hurricane deck was not recognized at the time, but when I looked at it, it was actually a pigment ro- uh, roasting site. The, the ochres had to be roasted in order to prepare them to be ground into pigment. And we've heard stories that they would burn them, but... There in the hurricane deck is a site where they were actually roasting the pigment, where they were grinding it. And there are, are chewed uh, quids of datura in there. We know that pigment cakes, when they were traded, had supernatural power. And so from looking at what was going on, I'm speculating that they are chewing the datura while they are preparing the pigments. And that, in process, is transferring that power from the detura into the pigment. Again, it's a story, but um, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> so when you say we had uh, red and it was ochre, we had yellow and other uh, elements, what kinds of stone exactly, the minerals, and what would they be called scientifically? Ochre is an iron oxide. The black came primarily from charcoal, but there's also manganese that was used for the black. Uh, The yellow is another form of iron ochre. Uh, What was significant about the roasting site we found is that it had both red and yellow ochres in it. If you heat yellow ochre, it turns red. Uh, So the fact that they were roasting the two together means they had a very sophisticated knowledge of Uh, temperatures and how to control the temperatures and roast the two pigments together and keep the yellow yellow and the red red. We believed from all of our studies that the white pigment was ground shell. 
because all of the tests showed white as being gypsum. But there is no records of the Chumash using gypsum to make pigment. There is records of them grinding shell. Well, lo and behold, in the uh, one cache in the Hurricane Deck area is a very large piece of gypsum, and it's ground on the edge from making pigment. So we learn some more about uh, what the Chumash were doing to, to get white pigment. Nice discovery. We only have a couple of minutes remaining, and I think we should close out with uh, reflections on why the rock art and rock art in general and Chumash rock art uh, is something that has engaged your interest in and uh, focus for so long and why it's a value to the uh, both academic community, Native people, and the general public. Well, if you have any interest in history and where we came from as a people and how we react with the world around us, going out into the backcountry and coming upon a painted cave and sitting down in it and just letting it speak to you, it, it, it's a remarkable experience. And it ties us together as, as humans from the standpoint of me being not a Chumash person, from the standpoint of being Chumash, it is evidence that this is your land and that's your culture and elements of your culture and the people who came before you, your f- deep families. It's, it's evidence that this was their land and, and you have inherited that from them. I, I have sitting on my desk in front of me, a piece of flint from Tennessee, which is where my family is from. Uh, And that's a connection when I touch that rock with my grandfather, my great-grandfather, and and those who came before him who lived and settled in that part of Tennessee. And rock art is much like that, I think, for the Chumash or other Native peoples, wherever they might be. These are sacred sites, much like this piece of flint sitting on my desk is a sacred stone to me because it connects to me and who I am. Fantastic. Thank you, Bill, for this uh, amazing journey of your personal background and the story of the Chumash and and their rock art. Uh, Honored to have you on board and, and thank you so much for sharing with us the nature of rock art research and your uh, life story in part and uh, thank thank you all for patching in and listening to this uh, remarkable discussion see you again next time thanks thank you thanks for listening to the rock art podcast with dr alan garfinkel and chris webster you can find this podcast on the educational podcast app lyceum L-Y-C-E-U-M, and wherever you find podcasts. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rockart. Thanks for listening, and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. 
Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to arcpodnet.com slash members for more. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Fro.